This is Lisa DeLay, and you are listening to the Spark My Muse podcast. Today, my guest is Lane Cohey, and we're going to be talking about his book, The Disquieted Soul, Paths of Discovery and Deliverance. Thank you so much, Lane, for being my guest today. Thank you, Lisa. I appreciate the opportunity. Your book has two parts to it, uh, discovery and deliverance. Do you want to talk a little bit about how your book is set up? Sure. I, I try to introduce it somewhat as a V, mm-hmm. where the going down part is really the process of discovering. What is the pathology of disquiet? Um, how do we get ourselves mixed up, if you will, in areas and distractions that, um, mm-hmm. you know, that, that do not feed our soul well? Uh, I hit a number of topics. One key topic that I talk about is cruel masters uh, and our tendency towards spiritual idolatry. Another topic is despondency. This is all of the the spade work I think that's necessary to really understand what's going on uh, in our hearts uh, and in our souls that lead to such restlessness. Mm-hmm. The the path upward, the um, deliverance path, is really the process of of three steps. Um, you know, changing the way in which we're thinking about ourselves and our sense of identity, mm-hmm. changing the way in which we think about God uh, and who he is, and then ultimately recovering or discovering a sense of trust. Mm-hmm. And so that's how I framed it. Um, central to all of this, uh, as, as we've chatted a little bit about offline, is the process of retraining our thought lives, mm-hmm. our patterns, our meditations, our contemplations, um, from this restlessness to uh, increased senses of peace uh, and quiet. Now, in your own life, you talk a bit about having insomnia and you know being hard driven, and you're in the military for seven years. How right. has it changed in in your frame of reference and your frame of mind how you see God? Well, I, I think that even though I um, came to faith. Uh, in college, uh, I will say that I continued to carry a lot of bad habits along in terms of the way in which I thought about myself, mm-hmm. particularly my sense of identity. I deal a lot in the area of shame and pride in the book mm-hmm. and, and those things and how um, how those can affect you. And I, I, I was very, and, and you know, continue to struggle with just being a very restless person, mm-hmm. being someone who has to go and do and accomplish and accomplish more. And I think, and, and, and so overdoing has been, um, you know, an issue in, of my life. And the world re- rewards a lot of that. You know, you get good performance reviews, you get degree, college degrees, you know, you get a lot of good stuff that comes out of that. Um, um, and so it reinforces it. But unfortunately, it, the soul is what, what suffers. And so as I've moved increasingly and followed the practices of the book, you know, it's a lifelong journey. Uh, it's never one and done. Uh, it's a continual, you know, two steps forward, one back. But um, it is very possible to uh, to quiet your soul and to have a lot more calmness, stillness, and reflection, and um, just tranquility in the midst of chaos. Uh, and that that's been my experience. I wanted to go to a portion of the book um, that I thought was really interesting. It's uh, on page 67, chapter six, chapters called The Human Paradox. Mm. And you talk about philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre 
and he who's actually an atheist and mm-hmm. um he writes something that that i think is is kind of onto something you you mentioned that it's onto something as well and and he talks about um his quote is man first of all exists encounters himself surges up in the world and defines himself afterward and um talks about it it points towards as we become self-aware as you say we immediately try to make sense of our existence a person's sense of self begins with acute sense of nothingness and he constantly strives to create some meaning self-concept um, we're always trying to make something of ourselves uh, and I think that's a really profound point uh, and paradox that we might not get our heads around or necessarily understand even though we're fighting against it and and wrestling with it the whole time. And I was hoping you could flesh that out or unpack it a little bit in general terms and then maybe how it's applied to you. Sure. I, I think, so first of all, the reason that I, I started with Sartre is because I think he's onto something, as you say, mm-hmm. that's very important. It's who are we mm-hmm. uh, as we enter into this world. Sometimes I call it as we come out of the box, as we wake up, <laughs> uh-huh. who, who are we? Yeah. Um, if you don't start with God, you have to start somewhere, and that's what he's saying. If you start with yourself, you, 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 you start, if you will, with emptiness and then build from the inside out. Um, uh, I suggest that um, uh, what's missing in his concept is that we are actually built with, and this is critical to the book, what I call identity needs. We need to feel meaningful. We need to feel worthwhile. We need to feel safe. We need to feel powerful. We need to feel valued. We need to feel esteemed. And we need to feel loved. But the what I call the human paradox and in, in, in the challenge of it all is that in many cases, in so many cases, particularly the, the disquieted soul doesn't feel those things. We need to feel meaningful, but we feel meaningless. We need to feel worthwhile, but we feel worthless. We need to feel safe, but we feel insecure. And the question is, why is that? And I think it points to the gap that exists Um, that needs to be recovered through a spiritual relationship with God. Mm. Um, But, you know, when we come out with these needs, um, the question is, where are we going to get them met? Mm. Uh, And I think that's the paradox. And as long as we try to meet them through relationships, even the best of relationships outside of God in an ultimate sense, Mm. I would suggest that we will always be disappointed. And... Uh, it's hard, uh, you know, when you have like wounds, like ego wounds, as, as Thomas Keating talks about, um, mm-hmm. that you unconsciously are trying to do fulfillment projects or happiness projects or, or whatever it is that's striving to, to fix these wounds that you might even not realize that you have, or even if you do realize them, you're trying to fix them, um, and, and not realizing that God has already, um, there's a, th- that longing is, is really begins and ends with God, right? So, yeah, I would suggest um, shame, mm-hmm. and I introduce and I talk a lot about shame in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, is a huge source um, of some of those wounds. Ultimately, when we when we think about condemnation, <clears throat> whether it's our own self condemnation or condemnation that we receive from others, or the wounds that have come from our environment, the shame that we tend to carry around. Um, a false sense of self, um, an identity message that is not true, is 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 critical to remedy because if we, if we don't get that, if we, we're not on a path of 
of changing the way in which we think and the voice in which we're hearing. We're only hearing our voices and the voices of those who condemn us. We're not hearing God's voice. And that's why the, the critical element of going back up the path of deliverance is starting with whose voice are we listening to? Mm. Our voices, mm -hmm. our, you know, our, our attackers, our accusers' voices, mm -hmm. or God's voice. Mm -hmm. So you're a big fan of Brene Brown then and her work. I know you mentioned it in the book. I, I, I appreciate her distinction mm -hmm. um, between shame and guilt because I think it's very helpful. Mm -hmm. I think that, um, you know, first of all, we have to appreciate that shame uh, is, as she defines it, is, you know, I am a bad person, whereas guilt is I have done something wrong or I've done something bad. Mm -hmm. Guilt is a very healthy mm -hmm. uh, perspective because we should be repentant. We mm. should apologize. We should say I was wrong and mm. I'm sorry. Mm. Shame, um, I find personally very little uh, value in now. It's, it's a powerful motivator, mm. a very powerful motivator. Mm -hmm. If you think about honor-shame societies right. or honor-shame cultures like right. the military, <laughs> did eight years <laughs> of military school and I appreciate the honor-shame culture. It's a very powerful motivator. Mm. But ultimately, if you're shaming somebody into um, into performance, mm -hmm. I suggest that that is, um, that is a very ultimately unhealthy way uh, from a spiritual perspective. Mm. That's, a good, that's a good point. I um, was hoping you would also get into what you mean by active meditation. It's on page 155, Christian meditation, but I liked how you uh, define that and flesh that out this is in the actually the appendices mm -hmm. portion which which is very rich appendices area and i i got a lot out of that i think my listeners would particularly appreciate what you have there um and you talk about you mentioned dallas willard here and the long tradition of christian meditation of course there's there's plenty of of talk of meditation in the psalms and, and throughout the bible but um how you define it you go into quite a few, quite a bit about meditation in terms of using some of the, the Hebrew words, and it would be interesting if you flesh that out. I would appreciate that. Sure. I think, uh, so the reason that um, uh, I want to continue to come back to meditation is mm -hmm. because as we're changing the way in which we're thinking, changing the voice that we're hearing, changing the, our reflections upon God, changing our reflections upon ourselves, um, you know, if not literally, we're at least figuratively changing neural pathways. Mm. Uh, and I think there's science that actually suggests that we that meditation mm. does change neural pathways, but I'm not in that brand of science, so I won't speak outside my school. Um, but what I will suggest is that when we are active, when we have active periods of meditation where we are thinking upon God, his word, his works, and his deeds— um, who he is, um, the profound nature of creation. You know, we, we can meditate on a number of, of topics. It is actually a process of reforming the way in which we are, are thinking, um, which is, is fundamental. And if it's not an active, consistent process, then our, our minds just go, I'll just say, you know, we may be relaxing, mm in screen time or zoning out in front of the TV or mm -hmm. turning our brains off or whatever, but, but they're not being replenished. They're, it's not being, it's, it's not ultimately being recharged in any constructive way. 
And so um, I think that what I'm encouraging everyone as a spiritual practice to do is, is to really dig deep into what uh, the Hebrew word is, is literally could be thought of as mental chewing, mentally chewing on God and his word and his works and his deeds just over and over revolving, replaying, recasting, rethinking um, the wonder and splendor of, of that. And, and it's just a totally transformational process when we're able to quiet ourselves and, 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 and go through that discipline. That type of meditation sounds a lot like thinking and, and processing and, and an active, um, would you say it's reasoning or would you say it's getting down to, does it end up in settling down into just abiding in God? Well, I'm, I'm not sure. Um, I, I'll try to answer it in this way. Maybe the way I encourage um, uh, people to meditate. Mm -hmm. um, I think the, the first thing that is, is very helpful is if we coach ourselves through the process. So to, to that degree, I do believe that there is a thinking element. You know, we're constantly coaching ourselves and we know how to coach ourselves um, mentally. And I think that that's actually what the psalmist does in many cases is coaches himself. Why are you cast down on my soul? Um, you know, who's he talking to? Well, he's talking to himself. He's talking to his soul. Um, he's basically saying to himself, listen for a moment, I will speak to you. So there is that thinking part, but, but I would suggest that through meditation, we should, I've offered three pro three, you know, three elements cleansing where we really go through the process of creating me a clean heart oh God and renew a right spirit in me, you know, entering into meditation with, with a clean heart, um, with the, you know, with the invoking and praying for the spirit to be present and, and to be alive and, and to be, um, you know, present in, in our meditations. Decluttering is uh, another uh, coaching element, which I, you know, we live in such a cluttered world. And it's so hard sometimes to just calm ourselves down and ask God to quiet us just so that we can begin to enter into you know, that process of, of deep meditation. And then I think the last part, and, and maybe the part that is ultimately where we want to get to is intimate communion. This is reflecting and listening. It's reflecting on who God is, what his truth is, who we are as a result of that. Um, and then, and then obviously as, as Richard Foster has, has commented, listening through God's word and his spirit for leading in life, not just you know, a two-way communion, if you will. Um, yeah, so I have uh, suggested that one way of doing that in that communion is just to focus on a word. And I give one illustration of focusing on the word joy and then unpacking that word and seeing that word transform um, a number of dimensions in our lives, the joy of Christ putting, bringing his bride before the Father, um, all of those elements of just that can come from that one word can be a spiral of meditation that you can go through and then play and replay and replay. And it really can be a truly transformational spiritual exercise. Well, can we go back to the decluttering? I would like sure. to understand that a little bit more. I know what decluttering is in my house with my stacks of books, <laughs> but how does it occur in the mind 
and I mean, it's a you're talking, I think, about mental decluttering, and how does it work for you? Well, for me, first of all, um, it, it it involves uh, physical decluttering, which means that I need to move um, all of the um, distractions um, out of the way, and so I need to, you know, I need to get rid of the the, the screens and the phones and 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 focus on that. But but then the other thing that um, you know that that we need to think about is. And, and I'll just quote from the book, in a noisy and frenetic world, we need to be intentional about decluttering ourselves. Our minds naturally enter into meditation full of wandering and often toxic thoughts. And as Richard Foster writes, in contemporary society, our adversary majors in three things, noise, hurry, and crowds. If he can keep us engaged in muchness and manyness, he will rest satisfied. That's Richard Foster. And so that's that's those are the things that we need to pray that God would help us defragment. Our souls need to get calmed down. We need the peace of God that transcends understanding to, as I say, flood the chaotic sanctuaries of our hearts. Um, you know, because we come in not only distracted, but oftentimes we come in wounded. As you mentioned earlier, our hearts have been lanced by pains of the world. We're doing mental battle with real or imagined adversaries. And so it's this process of, of calming um, stilling our hearts and really asking, as Thomas Watson says, to apply the medicine of Christ's blood to our wounds. You know, many times we're just beat up. Um, and so there's, there's this, I quote from Psalm 73, 26, recovering the words of my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And if we re really reflect on that, um, it's just getting to that sense of, of, of of stillness and confidence and seeing God as our strength emerging out of all of the clutter and chaos. Mm -hmm. um, and I can, I can see some, and, and I'm sure you can too, visually some of the imagery that can kind of help us um, in our mental screenplays as we walk through that. Mm -hmm. But you can see the chaos and you have to seek God getting you through the chaos or out of the chaos, if you will, to really enter in with decluttered souls. Hmm. Now, what were the three things that Foster said again? Uh, in contemporary society, so the adversary majors in three things, noise, hurry, and crowds. Noise, hurry, and crowds. And if he can keep us engaged in muchness and manyness, he will rest satisfied. Yeah, there's there's a lot of wisdom there, but I'm also thinking that it can it can be from good things too, like ministry things, or mm. um, mm -hmm. you know we think, well, I'm helping someone, so how could it be bad, or how could it be cluttering? But it really can be those those good things that get in the way of best things, uh, or a communion with God, because we're thinking, well, this is this is what my life is supposed to be about, right? Helping people and doing good things and and right. contributing, but actually without any margins or any space to hear from God and meditate, we're, we're starting to drain that tank and not exactly. refill it, right? I would say, to your point, um, exactly. I, I think that anything um, good or otherwise that consumes us in terms of busyness, you know, um, our, our 
tendency to be consumed with thoughts. What do I have to do? Planning for the day, you know, what's the task list? It could be a great task list. <laughs> it could be a very helpful, a necessary task list, but it can't be a task list that gets in the way of that communion or it's interrupting it. Um, and during my best periods of meditation, and I will say, I am a, a sincere work in progress. <laughs> <laughs> I am, I, you know, I have had some, some wonderful times and then some times where I'm, I just, it, it just seems like the engine won't start. <laughs> and um, and, and uh, during those times, you walk away, the, the, best, the best word I can use is refreshed. It's a refreshing that, um, that is, is not matched by anything else no matter how much leisure time you may have or how much fun you may have or how many parties you can go to or whatever your thing of choice is, it's just that refreshment of the soul that we need to keep coming back to, I think. Yeah. There's an interesting point that's in the book. It's kind of like a talking paradox, uh, a really interesting idea of listening deeply for becoming centered deeply and quieted. Um, Martin Lloyd-Jones says we allow ourselves to talk to us instead of talking to ourselves. And at first blush, that's <laughs> kind of sounds confusing. Um, right. Maybe you can explain more deeply what that means. Yeah. And it was, it alludes to the coaching that I was talking about earlier. Um, so uh, he makes this interesting, almost paradoxical statement um, when, when he talks about the psalmist um, speaking to himself, he, he, he says, am I, you know, being deliberately paradoxical, he says, take the thoughts that come to you the moment you wake up in the morning. You have not originated them, but they start talking to you. They bring back the problems of yesterday. Someone is talking. Who's talking to you? Well, yourself is talking to you. Now, the psalmist's treatment was this, and this is what uh, Jones says. Instead of allowing this self to talk to him, he starts talking to himself. Why are you cast down on my soul? He says, his soul has been depressing him, crushing him. So he stands up and says, self Listen for a moment, and I will speak to you. And so it's almost this, um, this it's this conversation where he realizes that he's getting his soul is getting barraged with the anxieties and the disquiet of life, and he's going to stand up and say, "Wait a second, time out. Where are you taking me? Why are you downcast?" And I'm going to what I use in the book. The term I use is reframe. I'm going to reframe my thinking. I'm going to reframe my sense of reality. Um, in order to, um, uh, if you will, go down the path of, of quieting our souls. So it's active. It's an active conversation that we're having, um, if that makes sense. Yeah. Well, and that's, that's really the, the epiphany of awareness, isn't it? Um, mm. it's, we're just going along and stuff is happening to us and thoughts are happening in our minds and we think we are our thoughts. We think we are one and the same as our thoughts. And then there's this uh, more like we all of a sudden become aware. What is that thought? That's is that who I am, or is that just a negative, you know, right. subterfuge kind of coming at me that, that I don't want to attach to? And then we think that's the oh, why why so downcast? Oh, my soul! You're like, wait a second, is that is that me, or is that a feeling that I can actually look at and hold at bay and say, I don't think I'm going to attach to that. And that's the, the, the part of the awareness that we can disengage from those things and then become centered in God, 
who isn't going to be isn't part of barraging us <laughs> with negative things and saying, you know, you didn't do enough, you, you aren't enough, um, I'm not happy with you. God is saying, I love you, come here, you're in my embrace, and, and anything else that says something else isn't part of who we are in God. Exactly. And I, and I think, and so in the book, I have this, I use the term spiritual circuit training diagram that kind of w encourages us to the, change the way we think. But the first question, to your point, is stop and think. What am I dwelling on? Where is my mind taking me at this very moment? What am I mentally chewing on? And then ask yourself, whose voice am I hearing? Is it a voice of shame and pride? Is it a voice of accusation? Is it false condemnation? Is it a false comparison and congratulation? And then adjust, adjust to God's truth and not my own truth. Um, and then it goes on. But it, it's exactly to your point. We have to be active in terms of understanding that thoughts just don't come into our minds and we just follow them whimsically. We have to understand what's, what's coming in and uh, constantly be about our ruminations. Yeah, it, it reminds me that we don't really understand how we are affected or even poisoned by, by our environment um, to the degree that uh, it can change our whole frame of reference, frame of mind, and, and attitudes. Like, it, <clears throat> excuse me, if we're if we're growing up in a in a toxic family, or if we're on, you know, Twitter, <laughs> I'm going to confess exactly. here sometimes too much, um, and then you're you're just surrounded by something that's negative, the negative thoughts will be more prolific and then think, well, that's how I am. But it's not actually, you know, so, so then you can pull away from it, look at it and reflect. And I think the Holy Spirit helps us to see, you know, truth from fiction or God's truth from, from our environment. And, and, but it's that, it's that pause, it's that reflection that mm -hmm. if we don't make time for that, that reflection, we really can't distinguish, I don't think. Right, and that's why, um, that's why I, I say in the book, um, when we talk about our sense of self or our identity, many times we will immediately ask ourselves the question, who am I? Um, but I think, uh, and, and the Bible has a lot to say about that, so I don't want to dismiss that question, but um, um, I think a better question to ask is, who does God say I am? Who does God say I am? And ultimately that comes, comes back to then answering that paradox, you know, that we, that we introduced a few minutes ago. Um, God does say you are meaningful. God says you're worthwhile. God says you're safe, you're powerful, you're valued, you're esteemed, you're loved. All of those things are true in Christ. But unless we are actively reflecting upon God's voice, we're not going to hear it. Yeah, I totally agree. I totally agree. Because we don't get those messages those are not readily available messages. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. The one, one thing I I would like uh, to go into I I think is um, is really pertinent to to many of us, many of our lives, and and the question that comes up a lot for people is um, something you cover on page one twenty four, purpose in our pain, and mm. um, there's this portion uh, that talks about. Um, something that Oz Guinness wrote later in page 126 uh -huh. and um, Baroness Car Caroline Cox and, and her incredible story um, that 
revolved around a genocide type of situation. Mm. And I, I um, don't want you to give all of it away so that people have something to read, but, but uh, the one particular quote in here um, is that no other God has wounds. Right. Really jumped out to me that that was um, from Caroline Cox, but perhaps you could unpack a little bit of of this section where you talk about purpose in our pain. I know that uh, it's easy sometimes if if um, somebody's going through something that that people will give them pat answers, you know, sure. or verses or something like that. Exactly. And I've found those to be the least helpful when I'm in pain. But yes. but the idea that no other God has wounds and that um, without easy answers that God can be with us in our pain. Maybe you can go into a little bit of what you were talking about in that section. Yeah, and, and, and to be fair, Guinness covers this very well in his book, The Long Journey Home. Mm. Um, it's his quote, I think, no other God has wounds. But um, mm. it harkens back to what I believe is the, one of the key initiators of our disquiet, which are threats, threats of pain, whether real or imagined. And we are, we're naturally people who um, want to protect ourselves. Mm. Um, we really weren't designed ultimately in the beginning for pain. Um, pain came as a result of, of man's transgression, and so, so we're we're protecting ourselves, and so, we go through all kinds of ways of doing that. But what God is ultimately reminding us is there's a, there is a reason and a purpose for pain, which may or may not be obvious at the time. I don't ever want to give pat answers or say, well, you know, it happens for a reason or, you know, any of those mm -hmm. kinds of things. But if we reflect on Jesus, he, his entire life was a life of pain. He came into the world through pain. You know, he, he journeyed much of his life misunderstood, misappreciated, betrayed, abandoned, scorned, shamed. Mm -hmm. He died, obviously, at a death of extreme pain. And, and so no other God has those wounds. And as we're journeying, many times people will say, well, Jesus leads from the front. And that's true. But he also leads from the side. He walks with us in pain. And that's the story of the Dinka women, mm -hmm. who after this cruelty that many of us would never imagine, actually were immediately identifying with Christ because they knew he was the one who had journeyed through this inexpressible pain that they were going through, and he alone understood them. Mm. Um, so I, you know, I think there's more to unpack there. Um, I think the fact that God is honest <laughs> in this world, you will have troubles. He doesn't lie about it. Um, he says, you know, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Don't don't uh, don't assume that you will not have pain because we certainly will. But please don't assume that it's meaningless because it certainly isn't if for no other reason but to change us um, into people that uh, are more caring, more forgiving, more loving, more tender, more compassionate, more able to empathize with others. Um, and that's what that's the point. So I think in the end, we can't truly trust God unless we're willing to enter into pain, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah. In my most um, painful and agonizing days or, or years, mm. what's helped me is at least if I can't, if I feel forsaken of God, 
like Jesus did on the cross, mm-hmm. <laughs> you could say, mm-hmm. um, that to just suspend um, the idea that I know what's happening, like mm-hmm. God is doing this to me, or this is what's happening, or I know what's happening, um, and just say, I, I probably don't know, and I can still have faith just uh, in, in the God that's taken me this far, and I probably don't know what's going on, so I should probably not make up my mind. Even just that suspension of a decision. Um, and because I think doubt, you know, we, we'll all have, if, if we're at least thinking people, in, in my opinion, if yeah. we're at least thinking people will wonder, hey, what's going on <laughs> sometimes? Yeah. What yes. happened? Did the bottom fall out here? Uh, have I been abandoned? Um, but that to save us from hopelessness, Sometimes we can cling to the fact that we are finite. We don't know what's around the bend. We we don't know why something's happened. And we might never even understand it if we were given some reason. But that because we don't know, um, we can actually hang on to that and that God did suffer with us uh, as a human and with all the pains that, that we endure. And and I think that that's, that is a comfort to me that, that God suffered in, in human form with all the, with all the typical sufferings, with hunger, with, with, you know, pain reflexes, with, you know, dying a, a human death. Right. And deep sadness mm-hmm. and deep sadness. And, and, um, you know, and he, and so that's why I use the term wearing our wounds. You know, he wears our wounds. Um, uh, we're not just wearing them alone. Um, and that identification, I think, is very powerful. It's not just that he he leads, it's it's that he's alongside. Mm-hmm. But to your point, and I think it's excellent, um, you know, we're in a culture, um, we call it locus of control, a high internal locus of control culture. Mm-hmm. We believe we can control our circumstances. You know, if something doesn't work, just turn the knob and it'll work. And, and we are, and, and not all cultures are like that, um, but ours in our Western culture certainly is. And so we have really grown up believing we shouldn't experience pain. And to the degree that we do experience pain, we need to fix it. We need to change it right away. And I think sometimes God is saying, no, no, no. You know, the pain, nobody likes pain. Um, it, it's not, you know, it's, we're not in, in any way masochistic. But by the same token, there's a reason for it. I'm journeying you for this for a reason. So to your point, suspend your opinion or your control and, and trust me. Mm-hmm. But that's easy to say. <laughs> right. And it's sure. hard to do. Sure. Exactly. <laughs> right. When you're in the middle of it, that's exactly. not what you want to hear. It's not what you want to hear. Um, but if you so come to... attitudes are not helpful. Yeah. <laughs> it's like you have to that, come to that conclusion on your very own. But at the exactly. same time, if you are able to, um, it can get you over that hump where you feel like all is lost. Um, I want to give you a chance to pull out anything from the book that you want to talk about or any last pearl of wisdom from the book or if you have another um, thing coming up you'd like to draw listeners to, to knowing about. Well, I think that um, we've, we've done a lot of good coverage. You know, I do believe that understanding and unpacking the, the, the importance of shame and pride and how those two things which seem to be so opposed to one another actually are very uh, commingled in many respects is very important in terms of understanding how we're reacting and responding, you know, what the pathology of disquiet is. <clears throat> we didn't spend a lot of time in that. It's a little bit technical, 
but um, I, I think that's very that's very important. I think understanding those identity needs that we talked about, you know, where we run to and why many times we run to the wrong things to find our meaning, to find our value, our significance, and so forth. And really, as we've discussed in detail, the transformation that has to happen at a, a mental and spiritual level to begin to take heart, take hold of ourselves, if you will, ask God to take hold of us and, and transform us, because otherwise we're just going to go wherever the wind blows us in our thought life, in our contemplations, and uh, the wind is not usually blowing us in a spiritually productive uh, direction. So I think that's, uh, I think we've covered a lot of ground. That's great. So the book is The Disquieted Soul, Paths of Discovery and Deliverance by Lane Cohey. Where can people find you and find the book? Well, I have a, a website, disquietedsoul.com. Um, so, and we have some video resources um, that uh, we did some Q&A with a student here at Palm Beach Atlantic. Um, so that's available. And then, of course, the book is available on Amazon. Um, and there's a link where uh, you can find it on Amazon. Well, I really enjoyed the conversation. It was wonderful to meet you and to appreciate a few of the podcasts I get to get to listen to this morning, and I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm going to do more of it. Uh, so, um, you know, thank you for what you're doing and appreciate it. Thank you.